Well, though Eugene Peterson helps us, this is still a weird passage. Just going to say it. Fig trees or apple trees. There's a lot happening in, this, in these nine little verses. Last week, Jesus compared himself to a mama hen with the wings outstretched, calling her unruly, unresponsive brood of chicks to come back to her. And this week, Jesus again sort of comes across as sort of comforting, but then maybe not quite, because he still says, though there's no link between human suffering and God's judgment, he has that line about needing to repent or else you'll perish, just as they did. Which is confusing in and of itself. And then, as if it would be helpful and clear it up, Jesus tells a parable, which are anything but clear, trying to help us understand questions of suffering, sin, and divine judgment. For the third Sunday in Lent, because we're in the middle of it now, This is a tough text, because if we just change a few details, these situations are all too familiar. Because we live in a world where worshipers from Christchurch to Cairo to Charleston are attacked and killed as they pray. And natural disasters from Lagos to Mozambique, to Indonesia, to the U.S. Midwest. It wreaked physical and emotional havoc, leaving rubble and chaos and questions in their wake. Because buildings still collapse. Tornadoes and hurricanes and cyclones still make landfall. And we cannot explain them. And because we live in this world, all of us at some point have wondered, why? Why do bad things happen? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why would a loving God allow such suffering to continue? For 2,000 years, questions of suffering have plagued Christianity. And for 2,000 years, we Christians have not been able to find the satisfying answer. We crave this theory of everything, that when bad things happen, we can find the formula to eliminate the mystery, to solve it. Everything in us still longs to make sense of the senseless. The people who ask Jesus their versions of the why question in the today's scripture already have an answer in mind. They don't approach Jesus with a blank slate. They show up hoping to confirm what they already believe, which is they come expecting Jesus to verify their deeply held assumption that people suffer because they're sinful, that folks get what they deserve, that bad things happen to bad people. Now, it's tempting for us in the 21st century to look at such beliefs and think, that's ridiculous. We know better than that. But really, when it comes down to it, 
How different are the beliefs that we hold about human suffering? When the unspeakable happens, what are the sayings that we revert to or that we still hear? Maybe we don't say them, but maybe they've been said to us. Things like everything happens for a reason. God is testing you, refining your character and your faith through this tragedy. Or these awesome ones, the Lord never gives anyone more than they can handle. And the worst, God just needed another angel. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm not the only one who just, that makes your skin crawl. But behind all of this comes the desire, I think, that is just part of who we are as human beings. We desire to comfort by explaining things. We want to find comfort in reasons why. It helps us to see it laid out, to get our hands around it, to see it, to touch it, to know. Because then if we know, maybe we can prevent it in the future. And so the problem, I think maybe that all of us have in the way we react to those statements, is when, we, when we're the recipient of them, it often feels like the speaker is just saying, oh, that's so sad for you, I'm so sorry. And then they go on to live their life. They're not interested in a connection with us. These answers hold us apart from suffering. These answers put up a wall to keep us apart from the never-ending work of relationship of solidarity, of empathy, and compassion. So Jesus severs this connection between suffering and punishment, dealing directly, emphatically, and bluntly with this human tendency to explain terrible tragedies. He says, do you think these were worse sinners than all the others? Nope. No worse than you. In this text, Jesus says no to simplistic answers to deep and complicated questions. Jesus says no to attempts to solve deep troubles with quick fixes. Jesus says no to shallow theological thinking. He challenges his listeners' assumptions and tells them to repent before it's too late, saying essentially that any question that allows us to keep a sanitized distance from the mystery and reality of another person's pain is a question we need to unask. Ask a better one. Ask a question that demands courage and forces us to confront our vulnerability and the need for connection. So if why is not the question to ask, what's the better question to help us make sense of the mystery of suffering? Well, in typical Jesus fashion, he dodges that one and instead tells a story. Jesus tells a story. Jesus teaches us to engage in story rather than cliches and platitudes. Cliches and platitudes are flat. 
Formulas are reductive. Theories don't heal. And questions that call for pat little answers aren't worth asking in the face of huge tragedy. But stories, now stories open up possibilities. Stories include us, unmake us, and transform us. I heard a story on the radio this week. It was an article also that I read about a reporter on NPR going to Alaska to talk with Inuit parents and how they helped to train their children to be safe, how to tell, maybe some of you heard this too, I hope I'll remember it, that mothers would tell their young children to protect them from going close to the ocean. There's a sea monster in that water. If you get too close, they're going to come out and grab you and take you down and never let you come back to to the house again. And so, of course, little children learn to have a fear of the water, not going there alone, not going there without knowing how to swim, making sure you had a grown-up with you who could protect you. We say a similar kind of thing about hot stoves. Don't touch that. You'll get burned. Or we get a little more creative. Telling stories keeps us protected. They engage us. They remake us. They transform us. And so Jesus tells a story about a gardener determined to tend this fruitless fig tree because the gardener is opened to a future possibility, a future that he does not control or manage. In the story, the vineyard owner is tired of this tree not yielding its fruit. And so like anyone with a food garden, Decides this tree is unproductive, it's taking up valuable space, using up soil, it's time to cut it down. But then the gardener steps in and says, well, hold on, let me work on this tree a little more. Let me tend to its branches, put some manure around it, and give it one more year to see if it produces fruit. Come back in a year and let's reassess. Now, though we don't know how this parable ends, let's pretend like the vineyard owner agreed and gave the gardener one more year. And it's always good before we get into parables that when we're reading one, we know we're not reading a fable or a moral with a straightforward plot and easily identifiable characters. The point of a parable is to highlight truth with a capital T. The truth of God, which can sometimes make us uncomfortable in its mystery and what it reveals about God, about humanity, and about this relationship between God and humans. And it's also important to remember that parables do not have assigned roles. Certain characters are not always stock characters for God or Jesus or humans. But it is common to assume that God is the wealthy one, the wealthy character in the parables. A king, a landowner, a father, a vineyard owner. But in this parable, the vineyard owner 
does not sound much like God revealed in Jesus, who loved us enough to become vulnerable, dependent on us, the creator needing the creatures. Doesn't sound much like that mama hen, willing to be vulnerable, to stand in front of danger, because there is so much love and grace and mercy for those chickens. In this story, the vineyard owner is cranky, impatient, and results-driven. That does not sound like God. That sounds like us. You know what else sounds like us? The fig tree or the apple tree. This poor little tree that's been trying to grow for three years, doing its best, but is just not able to produce Have you ever felt like this? Show of hands. (laughs) All of us, anonymous. When we're just not able to do what we think we're supposed to do or what we know we're supposed to do, something is just holding us back. We're waiting for something to change. Something's got to give. Maybe we're waiting for this metaphorical axe to come along and help us move on and do something else. Or we're waiting for some wise gardener, some other person who has a better vision with a plan to jumpstart our growth and our purpose. Well, in this story, it's the gardener who comes through for this tree. But this is what I love, that instead of being transplanted to a better part of the garden with more water, the right balance between sun and shade, not too close to those other needy trees and their needy roots taking away nutrients, the gardener dumps a whole big pile of manure around the tree's base and then starts sharpening pruning shears. Now, in some translations, it's called fertilizer. But in the Greek, the word is dung or manure. I looked it up. Jesus has a potty sense of humor because the whole key to this story of grace and mercy is a big old pile of poo. (laughs) And you don't even need to be a tree to get that metaphor. Do you know what I'm saying? Even 2,000 years later, How do we describe a bad day? There's some derivative of the word manure involved, usually. And we really start questioning, who's in charge here? Why did I do? What did I do to deserve this? What did my loved one do? Why them? Why now? Why me? We ask because we want to understand. We are this curious blend of cranky, impatient vineyard owner, particularly with ourselves and those we love, and this fig tree, yearning to be fruitful but feeling unproductive, lacking in something, needing a little help. And then the gardener steps in, saying both to the results-driven vineyard owner and the fig tree with low tree esteem, Hey, let's just go one more year. Can you give me one more year? Let's take this time to work on tending your roots 
to transform you with love, with forgiveness, with tenderness, into what you were intended to be. One more year to turn all the manure, the missed opportunities to be fruitful and productive, feeling like you're just taking up space, to turn all of that into a thriving, flourishing expression of grace, abundance, and fulfillment of purpose. One more year to realize you're not in this garden alone, and what happens to one tree affects all trees. What happens in one part of the human family affects all of us. One more year to ask a better question, to live a better answer, to imagine a deeper story. Why hasn't the fig tree produced fruit yet? Here's the manure. There's a spade. Get to work. Why do terrible, painful, and completely unfair things happen in this world? Go weep with someone who's weeping. Go and fight for the justice you long to see. Go confront evil when it needs confronting. Go learn the art of patient, hope-filled tending. Go and make beautiful things. Go and look your own sin in the eye and repent now while you still can. Do it now. Because there is no us and them. Because there are no guarantees. Because all of us are beloved. All of us are perishing. And all of us need the care of a hopeful, patient gardener who says to us, one more year. You know, your deadline may not, may or may not be one year from now, but we all have a deadline, literally, when you think about it. Life is shorter than we think. Lots of things are out of our control. But each moment of life is a time to repent, a time to move closer to God. Even with questions and doubts, even with our desires for tangible results and our aches to be fruitful, and each moment of life is a time to experience the love and grace of God, nourishing us, strengthening us in our identities as God's beloved children. So that when the rest of life and all its manure happens, because it will, we are secure and focused on what producing a fruitful life will look like. What will you do with your one wild and precious life? Asks the poet Mary Oliver. What will you do before your time is up? Don't wait to ask that question. Go deep. Be brave. Don't be afraid to grow. What will you do with one more year? What will you do today? Amen. <clears throat>